Um, good evening, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Jonathan Bell. I'm the head of the Institute of the Americas here at UCL. Um, tonight's lecture, um, I think, is quite a timely one, um, and it is entitled Trump's Triumph in Early Days and Historian's Perspective. And boy, do we need a historian's perspective, I think, on how we got and why we got to the state that we're in now. Um, and I cannot think of a better person than Ellie Shermer to talk to us this evening on this subject. Um, Ellie has spent her whole entire career to date uh, making a name for herself as what I would consider one of the most exciting historians working on American conservatism during the 20th century. Um, and um, she's been particularly interested in the relationship between the rise of new grassroots rights movements and uh, business politics. Her first book, um, called Sunbelt Capitalism, Phoenix and the Transformation of American Politics, published in 2013, was a consideration of the dynamics of business conservatism in the Sunbelt Southwest after the Second World War and the way in which it fundamentally transformed the balance of power in American political life towards pro-business right-wing conservatism. But she's also the editor of a book on Barry Goldwater called Barry Goldwater and the Remaking of the American Political Landscape. And she's also the co-editor of a collection I value very highly, um, co-edited with Nelson Lichtenstein, The Right and Labour in America, Politics, Ideology and Imagination. Um, and she's here to talk to us this evening about Trump and the road to there. So, Ellie. Thank you. So uh, I want to thank, uh, first and foremost, and thank my hosts here at UCL, particularly Jonathan Bell for that wonderful um, inter introduction, and of course Nick Withiam, and of course everyone else who made it possible for me to be here um, tonight. But I also have to thank you guys for coming out at 6 p.m. on a Tuesday. Um, and it's actually great to see so, so many people in the audience, because in the U.S. it was interesting that by the time we got to October, the majority of Americans were really ready for that presidential election to be over with. It, arguably in the states, presidential elections start four years before. And more importantly, right now in the states, 46% of Americans want Trump impeached. So it's a really interesting uh, moment uh, uh, to be in. But I think what's really interesting about both the 2016 election, most of what I'm going to talk about tonight is about the 2016 election, because we're only in the first month, ugh, unbelievable, first month of the Trump presidency. Um, what's both exhausting about this entire phenomenon is also what's so exhilarating about it and actually keeps us talking about it and keeps us packed and keeps us sort of focused on our Twitter feeds about what might be happening. But of course, the reason that it's exhilarating is it just seems so unpredictable. And yet, I would argue, and I, like I'm going to talk to you tonight, it actually, it actually wasn't, wasn't all that unexpected. Um, and I think the thing about it is, is that to historians, the election and his first months in office really make clear that this outcome may not have been foreseeable. You know, there's so much things about contingency, but it was, not, and his election was certainly not assured, but it's still not unsurprising when we took, take a look at the, the, the past history of the United States over the last um, couple of decades. And I think one of the reasons is it also speaks to the fact that so much of the 2016 election in this first month in office seems to rhyme with the past. And notice I said rhyme, not repeat it, because as Mark Twain um, famously said, history actually can't repeat itself. 
but sometimes it rhymes. And to understand all of what is so was so perplexing, but also so familiar in 2016 and now into 2017, is we actually have to start with the election <coughs> of itself, and not just Trump's primary and general election, because in all the commentary right now, we're forgetting that there was this other side to the race, that Democratic Party as well. So I actually want to start with the Democrats. Um, and the thing is, what's really interesting about it is that the, that party's nominee seemed to be a clear repetition of the past, someone really f right out of the past. Um, she's, Hillary Clinton is running again. In fact, she looks remarkably, she looks terrific from 08 to 20, uh, 2015. And again, in 2008, just like in 2015, she was predicted to be basically uh, the presumptive nominee. And in 2008, of course, if she squared, against, um, uh, squared off against the junior biracial senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, in 2016, we have her against a little-known senator um, from Vermont. So in 2016, not only do we have another Clinton running again, but against an aging white man who has been a fixture in Washington for years. And I think that's what's surprising about him, is that we forget that Bernie Sanders has been around since 1991, so before the Clintons actually came to Washington. That's actually a picture of Sanders when he first came uh, to D.C. Uh, in the House. Now, the thing is, many, particularly in the Clinton clamp, because of what we know from the leaks that happened, considered that extended fight between Sanders and Clinton a low for their election. Like, this was something that was terrible. Um, but the thing is, is when especially then we see that you know what they're trying to do is desperately thwart Sanders' run. But I actually say that what if the unexpectedly long Democratic primary, one that dragged on just as much in 08, was actually a high for, of this election, actually something good maybe for American politics? Because Sanders initially seemed to be running as a protest candidate with no real kind of ambitions. And he doesn't actually have much of a plan. He doesn't actually have much of a, of a backing. But what was incredible and really exciting was that he energized so many Americans. He really absolutely did. Bringing in new members into the Democratic, um, in the Democratic Party, the ones who were actually the most upset, the most upset um, by how things turned out in terms of Clinton's eventual, eventual coronation um, as, the, as the DNC's uh, nominee, um, but I think what's really awesome about this is that when, because Sanders actually stayed in the primaries far longer than it really seemed that he actually had any possibility of winning, was that we had voters actually, the voters so energized to participate in that, turning out for down-ballot race, uh, races in a lot of these states. And in my case, in Illinois, where we had a tremendous upset in terms of the Democratic Party and actually getting a, a progressive out of there, our new Senator um, Tammy Duckworth. But that's all because of people still staying engaged with the political process and actually still um, a part of it. Um, and it's important because one of the things that people forget about US in U.S. politics very few people participate in the primaries. And what's really sad is there was actually an uptake overall, but also for both parties in the 2016 primary. So this is 1980 to the present. But still, in 2016, the, the, the percentage of Americans that actually picked, uh, participated in the primaries to pick the candidates was only 9%. That's terrifying, and that's actually not um, all that good um, for uh, democracy. Because pr primary participation is absolutely critical to democratic um, uh, governance. 
And also the idea that people were energized and excited and being informed not just to go out and vote for Sanders versus Clinton, but also being given information about the importance of down-ballot elections goes to the fact that Americans, typically when you talk to Americans, they think the president does everything, this kind of rhetoric. But now and actually sort of talking about, well, what does my senator do and why would this actually be important is a better conversation to be had about how the United States is actually um, governed. Now, Sanders' success in absolutely enlivening the electorate in 2016 was a protest run and a popular following. So the excitement that he got, which is decades in the making, something that we could have seen inklings of having. Because what's interesting is there has been a frustration with Bill Clinton's, what we call the new democratic agenda, for years. And so what Clinton is doing in the in the early 90s is running as a Democrat who makes who's going to make liberalism a lot more palatable, meaning he's actually going to water it down and make, making it more southern. And here he is, this is one of my favorite um, signing that he does. So he's most he's surrounded here when he's signing welfare out of law as we know it by two excuse me, three um, uh, three single mothers on welfare. Two of them, of course, are African American, and behind him are white men in suits. Many of them from the bipartisan effort that that took. Meanwhile, outside is this extraordinary protest at the time with Jesse Jackson of the Rainbow Coalition, with the National Organization of Women outside, protesting what they see as an affront to the Democratic Party's value and actually social welfare in the U.S. as we know it. Um, there's evidence of building frustration for this for years. My favorite, and unfortunately one that is actually overlooked and maligned, is actually Ralph Nader in 2000. The argument being that he's the one who cost more the election. It actually isn't quite, uh, it isn't true in that respect. It also unfortunately means that people water down what he was actually standing for in 2000 as a third party run for the Green Party. Um, and not paying attention to his very pointed critiques about economic inequality um, in the U.S. Another one, important one, 2004, Howard Dean. This is a very famous Dean screen that he does in the primaries about how energized that he's going to do. And it was really interesting. Before the primaries actually started, there were a lot of predictions that Howard Dean was going to do well because he was the first to actually take advantage of a little-known website at the time called moveon.org and some of the other social media websites for getting people engaged in politics that had taken off. And it's not enough to have him win um, in the primaries um, in Iowa, the early ones, but it was a really interesting sort of pointed critique that he offered that Democrats needed to have a 50-state strategy. And that's one of the reasons why he would actually be named as being the head of the party leadership, so important for actually helping to um, build the coalition that would elect Obama in 08. And speaking of 08, we have a really interesting field of Democrats in 08. And what I think is so exciting about when we actually look at primaries, as confusing as they can be, is it actually is a good thing when we see what's, what it means when we see a ton of people throwing their hat in the running in the primaries, is we have a divided party. We have a very divided party. And what people don't unfortunately remember um, about the 08 primary, they remember Clinton versus Obama. Those were actually the two centrist candidates who actually had very little difference in their actual policies. Um, but more interesting were some of the challengers. My favorite was Dennis Kucinich from the Midwest who actually wanted a single payer health care plan. 
And then more importantly, um, and actually studied in a bit longer, was actually John Edwards, before we knew about the crazy politics of, of, of what he liked to do um, with some of his campaign staff, he was actually talking about poverty. He was talking about poverty in a way that we have not actually heard since um, the war on poverty in the 1960s. So bringing that part back that had been lost with the Clinton's agenda in the 1990s. So the thing is, the 2016 Democratic Party, which really had two candidates, there's a third, but he didn't really go anywhere, um, doesn't seem all of that contentious when you look at this, oh, it's because there's only two of them, doesn't seem all that contentious when we look at the 2016 Republican Party, my favorite. Um, there's 18 major candidates. You want to talk about divided party in a, in a, in a larger uh, conservative movement, there you go. As a matter of fact, these are just the 18 top candidates. Over 100 Americans put in that they wanted to be at the top of the GOP um, uh, ticket, declared themselves to be running. And my favorite aspect of this, it was, I have to be honest, it was, it was entertaining for me, was the fact that they had needed two tiers of debates. And the jockeying and fighting over who would actually be a part of those tiers was really kind of interesting. But again, what's really exciting about this is that it keeps the electorate absolutely there's the two tiers of debates, absolutely engaged. And we see that much needed uptick um, in terms of actual party participation, primary uh, participation. But the thing is, just like um, the crowded field for the Democrats in 08 is, is discussing a sort of very divided party, it's the same thing for the Republican Party. And the thing about it is, this is party disunity that is, has been in place long before the very infam infamous 2016 Republican National Convention, when so many headlining Republicans sat out or openly challenged Trump um, on the delegation. So there's been a, there was a problem. This is the great sort of picture of Ted Cruz openly denouncing him, and the the boos from the audience, and then actually Trump sort of showing up with the rest of his family to sort of stare him down. But it's incredible. But. But the problem is, the discussion at the time was thinking that the Never Trump movement versus the, uh, versus the Republican Party, that that was party disunity. But if you actually look at just the number of, and the, the, actually the, the number of people entering, we see a very fractured Republican Party. I will say, as a sort of personal note, I actually don't watch these things. I listen to them on the radio. And it was actually really incredible to me that I'm sitting there cooking dinner, listening to Ted Cruz in this speech, and then starting to hear the boos and the jeers from the audience, and then the eruption of applause as the commentators explain. And it was actually extraordinary that Donald Trump actually showed up at the convention because that is a form that is not that that breaks the tradition that we have that the candidate doesn't actually show up until they actually receive um, uh, their nomination. But the thing is, I would argue that this disunity within the Republican Party, and it's so important that if you're so dividing your electorate, that's why you can have someone who's basically from outside the party that was Donald Trump, that's why you can have them actually prevail um, in the primary. Um, but this disunity within the Republicans is actually a disunity that we find within the conservative movement, right? Which is really housed within the Republican Party. And to be honest, at this point, um, they really are um, synonymous. The thing is, the irony of ironies is that there are indications for a very long time that the disagreements and conflicts um, were always there. And actually, even there, during the Republican Party's 
greatest 20th century electoral triumph, otherwise known as Ronald Reagan's um, election. And that's the very, I always like to show the district level map so you can really get a sense of, of how things start, get a better, clearer picture of where the votes were going um, than in the, in the state by uh, the state maps. But the thing is, despite this map, Reagan's election was not a revolution, but 50 years of movement building that had transformed the base of the Republican Party. In fact, I used to love it. The, his aides, Reagan's aides, hated the very term, the Reagan Revolution, because they would talk about it as that they don't understand that this is a 50-year um, process with, it has moved with the, with the speed um, of a glacier. And what's really interesting is that Reagan's supporters didn't actually embrace the term Reagan Revolution until George H.W. Bush was actually going to run to um, replace him in 1988 because it was the idea that he would carry forth the mantle to, in fact, um, uh, finish what Reagan had only just started. But the thing is, Reagan's election, this incredible sort of seemingly uh, 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 show of unity, nationwide unity behind his run, or and within the Republican Party, had done nothing to actually solve the inherent tensions in the, cons the, in, in the conservative movement, which is actually a coalition brought together in the, in the, really in the 19, well, really in the post-war period, but starting in the 1930s, to oppose liberalism, whether it was practiced by Democrats or Republicans at the time. And so how we think about it, and the, the, the commentators today, they like to talk about the, the idea of the three-legged stool, that there are three pillars to the Republican Party, to the conservative movement. You have the, the conservatives who are mo most concerned about fiscal matters, the business conservatives, you have the ones who are most concerned about um, defense or national security, and then you have um, the social conservatives. But whatever, even though it seems like this is just an unstoppable, an, uh, you know, a very sort of stiff uh, stool that cannot be toppled, it's actually quite weak. Because if you think about it, fiscal conservatives may not want to spend the money on defense that you want to do. And more importantly, they probably don't want to spend the money on the social um, on the social programs that a lot of social conservatives actually want. More importantly, they might think, why, if we want the government out of the economy, why would we want the government in questions of abortion rights as well? And there's also a question in terms of defense. If social conservatives do tend to be, not necessarily, but tend to be from um, middle and, and, and lower classes, who fights in the, de in the defense conservatives' wars is, of course, them. So there is this problem that has been baked in um, from uh, the very, very uh, beginning. You can see those fissures present throughout the entire genesis of the movement, but also as it actually seems to have its greatest triumph. For example, look at how crowded the 1980 primary was. Everyone forgets. It's a story of Ronald Reagan. But look at actually how divided the primary map was um, as well. And what's really interesting about it, Reagan's chief challenger was actually George H.W. Bush, his most strident critic, who called his entire economics program voodoo economics. And so in order to actually bring the party together, to actually have that victory, um, uh, not only in the primaries but also at the national level, you have to make your greatest critic your vice presidential pick. And that's what kind of brings, uh, brings it together. But it doesn't really solve anything. And in fact, we can actually see how these tensions are not resolved in 2008. Another packed primary, 
another very divided electorate. And my favorite story about the 2008 electorate, uh, election is if everyone remembers the Democratic primary going on forever. Well, the 08 one, McCain locked it up pretty early. However, he was only in the later primaries only getting anywhere from 60 to 70% of the vote because there were so many protest votes from Republican Party stalwarts, the ones who actually participate in the primaries, against him. So you see it there. You see it there that he actually himself was not able to lock up either the party or the, the, the nation as a whole. And so what's interesting, my favorite thing, though, when you look ahead to 2016, is 20, one of the best, most interesting features of the 2016 primary, very crowded primary, was that it seemed to be indicative of a new, far more inclusive and very diverse GOP. My students actually love this when I was, I do, do a class about the election when, when it's actually in progress. And so this is one of the great conservative memes. And this is actually before Sanders got in, but the predictions, but these are the ones who had already thrown their hat in the ring, that the true, uh, the true, the truly diverse party was of course the Republican party. Well, that field, that field um, including Bobby Jindal, the governor of Louisiana, Ted Cruz, um, Cuban-American, uh, uh, sorry, that's wrong, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, um, and then of course we have Ben Carson, um, African-American, is that we have these, this field of multicultural conservatives, oh, and I should also include um, uh, uh, Carla, Fiore, Carla Fiorini, is that they've been around for a while and we haven't paid as much attention to them. With some exceptions, historians date the emergence of the so-called multicultural conservatives in the 1960s. And the key reason that we think of the 1960s is the passage of our landmark Civil Rights and Voting Rights uh, Act, as well as immigration legislation. And what this was, was really progressive me measures to sort of bar discrimination um, in those areas. But the question is, after the passage of that legislation, when it's actually written into law, White women and Americans of color, be they men or women, may not actually like the directions of civil rights organizations and feminist movement organizations go in the years afterwards, in what we call the sort of post-civil rights era, meaning the post-civil rights act era. And that becomes a question of, well, we have this law. How is it going to be enforced? What are we going, um, what are we actually going to, to do with it? And the thing is, what's really frustrating is, I always joke with my students that the civil rights movement and the feminist movement in the U.S. kind of seem to dot, kind of seem to disappear at a certain point um, in the textbooks because it's far less interesting. It, what we remember, of course, is the militancy of the student organizations that seem to turn people, uh, to turn Americans off. But more importantly, what is sustained for a long time is actually these kinds of institutions that actually do the work to enforce the law. And the question of the Congressional Black Caucus um, right now, that is a, you know, that is African-American um, congressional members who actually t work together and work with policy experts about what are the kinds of programs and policies that could be the best for their constituencies. And the Mexican-American Legal Defense Education Fund is also one of my favorites because they're originally starting off um, to help with um, uh, the importance of getting um, better schooling options for Mexican-Americans, but now the main thing that they're doing is trying to stop the dreamers from being deported, the, student, the students who are born here, are born in the U.S. and then, um, um, uh, or excuse me, not, not born in the U.S., but brought here as children, making their way um, uh, through the U.S. education system. But the thing is, our multicultural conservatives, 
disliked these kinds of evolution in civil rights policy. The most famous ones that people hate are these folks hated turned to be affirmative action. And in the US, we tend to think of, well, what the British tend to call uh, positive discrimination. We think of affirmative action as something that's really important to um, mobilizing white conservatives. But it also was really important to African-American conservatives as something that it was not needed. It was something that was an affront. It was a, you know, a step too far. And that's famously the argument of Clarence Thomas, the uh, Supreme Court Justice, very famous for not actually saying all that much. And he's one of the earliest and most prominent of these multicultural um, conservatives, which give us a sense that there's something deeper and much more interesting going on in the conservative movement. And incidentally, so Thomas right now is famous for being in the Supreme Court and not saying anything. But where he got his start was actually he was Reagan's appointee to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which actually enforces the civil rights law. And so what he did as the head of it was he refused to actually prosecute cases. And he just actually sat on them. So that kind of um, policy in action that we're talking about right now in the US happening in Congress is not something that's all that unfamiliar from the rights playbook um, at all. So what's interesting is so-called multicultural conservatives tended to find that their concerns about religious protections, their faith, their social concerns, their concerns about their families, um, their economic policies, their foreign policy concerns, particularly the questions of um, immigration and, and U.S. response to Cuba, they found that those were actually answered best in the conservative movement in the wake of the passage of the civil rights um, era legislation um, that had been transforming the Republican Party since the 1950s. And that's ex explicitly what all of these folks from Ted Cruz, Bobby Jindal, Ben Carson, and Marco Rubio talk very explicitly about why that resonates with them and about their values, despite the color of the, their, their skin. And what's, I think, really interesting though, about them is that if you think of, we have two senators, um, we also have, well, a very acclaimed surgeon, and then we also have the governor of Louisiana. These are all folks, uh, three of the four, have are at the head of states with a huge white population which is, has no problem whatsoever voting for them, which chafes against the assumptions, the knee-jerk assumptions that we make about American conservatism. But let's be honest, the diversity of the GOP primary had absolutely nothing to do with the convention whatsoever. Um, the Republican National Convention was overly white, overwhelmingly white in attendance. So you can see the great you know, contrast to the pictures. And also, of course, just how different it was um, in terms of the delegates um, as well between the two parties. Um, and actually, what's interesting is that that turnout for the RNC, such an affront, such an affront to how it actually started out with the primaries with such a diverse field of candidates, was actually considered detrimental to the Republican Party and proof that couldn't actually live up to his colorblind conservatism. And the reason that that was particularly important was because it was especially stark given the racism and sexism that seemed to be first just an undercurrent in the primary election and then became the primary feature of the general election run, which of course means that I'm finally gonna to talk to you about Donald Trump. Look, you have to understand, like he's not just one, he might think of himself as one person vanquishing everything, but this is actually what he's actually coming out of. Um, what's, Donald Trump's an extraordinary candidate um, uh, in some ways. He has no government service whatsoever. 
So he's actually outside Washington, as opposed to just saying he is, as so many um, American politicians have done before. That was, of course, Bill Clinton's famous line that he's from Arkansas. He's not a part of that Beltway establishment. He's completely and totally careening in the way that he campaigns and tweets and now governs. We don't actually know. It's actually quite terrifying to sort of to look at your phone if you're in the SEC days and just see the updates that are actually coming in um, uh, over time. But the thing is, his inflammatory rhetoric has at one time or another managed to target anyone who in the United States was not a white heteronormative man. But the thing is, that's not new in American politics. And we really need to pretend that, we have to stop pretending that it was. And it, it particularly isn't true even amongst its elected leaders. This is not something that keeps you from being electable. Now, what's, people are more attuned to the kind of subtle attacks, such as the supposedly colorblind attacks on welfare queens, which really means uh, uh, African-American women. That was the stereotype. And of course, that's something that people associate with Ronald Reagan. It was actually LBJ who we have the first record of actually saying that, the Democratic president in the 1960s who signed into law all of that civil rights legislation. And of course, we also have privately. We have presidential tapes um, that are the gift that keeps on giving. One of my favorites is actually um, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon is under a tremendous pressure um, in the early 1970s to appoint a woman to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and he finally sort of caves that he will. Um, but only because she ha doesn't, there's no chance that the, that the Senate will actually confirm a woman to um, the Supreme Court. And he goes, he's on record with his aides basically saying, he's like, I'll do this, but you, as long as you promise that she won't, there's not a chance, I really don't think women should have the right to vote. And then he goes even further and says, that's the one you want? It's actually someone who was recommended by uh, Ronald Reagan, then governor of California. And he says, well, as long as she's not one of those frigid bitches. And it's perfect. It's exactly what you want. Uh, my other favorite one from that time, uh, another one famous for his salty, highly sexual charged language is LBJ, called Vietnam the whore who distracted him from the great society, the woman who he really loved. Um, and so I have to say, is it any wonder, really, that a major parties, whether Democrat or Republican, major parties presidential candidate can now openly denigrate Americans because of their race, sex, religion, immigration status, disability, or size. Because I don't think it is all that surprising that a politician in 2016 can say that publicly because of the volunteer army policing the U.S.-Mexico border. By the way, 50% of the ones in Arizona on the U.S.-Mexican border are Chicano. Um, also, why should we be surprised that Trump could prevail? This was completely fine with the fact that we have police shootings of unarmed African Americans and open <coughs> attacks on black churches. This is before the election when it was burned. Let's keep going. Uh, there's also persistence of women earning less um, on the dollar than men and complete and total religious intolerance. The swastikas on um, Jewish community buildings actually started showing up before the election um, as well. And why should we be surprised that many voters were willing to look past his inflammatory rhetoric? Many saying that they just didn't believe that he meant it. Why are we surprised? Now, there are other reasons that Camp, Trump was a candidate decades in the making. 
Besides the fact, as I've talked about before, there was persistent GOP unity. The GOP could not agree with agree on someone from within its party ranks. And you can actually see this not only in 08 and, um, and 16, which I showed you before, but one of my favorites was 2012, when I was actually living here um, in the States. Every morning I woke up, there was a new GOP frontliner. Stretching from Ben Carson and his 555 tax plan to Newt Gingrich coming out of the political ether from absolutely nowhere. Look at how divided that is and how it was remarkable that Mitt Romney actually um, prevailed. There's also frustration within the Republican Party, speaking to that, that they keep putting up the same people over and over and over again. Of course, Jeb Bush had a exclamation point. Jeb Bush had a very short, a very short run. But if I could have included, and in, in, in more pictures of this, I could have included McCain, who was a multiple, he ran in 2000 and again in 2008. I could also include Gingrich. I sure could have. Now, there's also a sense that there's a desire from someone outside the parties, and that should not be surprising. Because when I showed you back, way back before, that decline in primary participation, part of that is because we have had an incredible decline in party membership in the US, and a real frustration that the parties are part of the problem. It's one of the reasons there's not a lot of um, actual voting taking place in the primaries themselves. Which is why the real predecessor to Donald Trump, because I've had phone calls um, since he really started gaining the momentum about the comparisons with Barry Goldwater. And that's not Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater's a career politician. His real, uh, his real predecessor was a man named Ross Perot, who I'm not sure if anyone sort of remembers, but I think he's actually, and I have for some time, thought he was really important. If anything, so Ross Perot is a Texas billionaire who is very, very famous um, for uh, showing up on, uh, with his, his platform. And it was an, a platform that was absolutely extraordinary. It was just as careening as Trump's. He was in favor of gun control, abortion rights. He hated NAFTA, but then he also was into law and order. He, the, the, gosh, the list just went on and on. More importantly, what he did, because no, none of the mainstream news organizations would actually pay attention to him, he found his voice. He found a place for his platform, A, on 30-minute infomercials that he paid for himself, which he flipped through with cards. Or he went to the then novel CNN network with his 24-hour um, news tapes, and they had a lot of airtime to fill because no one else was paying attention to CNN at this time. And he would just sit there and spam on all of the time. And I think it's really kind of very important that if, if, if Perot was the one to first capitalize on this 24-hour news infotainment, information as entertainment, uh, thing, that it is that by the time we get to 2016, Trump is dismissing it as lamestream and going to Twitter. Um, not even Facebook. Forget Facebook. It's all about um, uh, Twitter. And what's really remarkable about Ross Perot is that he won 19% of the popular vote. He didn't win a single um, electoral college vote. He only carried a couple of districts. But he had sizable support, which shocked everyone because polls didn't indicate he'd do that well. Polls did not indicate that he would do that well. And the thing is, that's what's really important about understanding these populist uh, candidates. We've had them at the, successful at the state and local level, and I'll talk to you all you want about them uh, if you want. Uh, but the polls never are able to predict because people will not admit that they're going to vote for them. And the same was true with Donald Trump. 
if everyone who lives and breathes by that 538 blog with Nate Silver, if you actually looked very closely, he was looking at polls and making his predictions on polls where a respondent had to identify themselves. If you want something, a closer comparison to how the election actually turned out, you had to go deep and actually try and look at the polls that he was ignoring that were anonymous. And that's the long and short of it. And I think what's really interesting about that is that these kinds of candidates, um, Ross Perot running from outside the Republican Party, not taking it over like Donald Trump, Trump did, but as a, as a complete outsider, as a third party, is that... You know, they don't really use, they, they had already, they've been, we'd been seeing them at the state and local level really since the 1960s, really since the 1960s, and frustrating Republican leaders then. In fact, they started calling them their Frankenstein's monster, what they created but they could no longer control. And that's actually how they thought about people you know, really tapping into a frustration and the language of the conservative movement of the Republican Party, but actually using it to an agenda that they were not comfortable with at all, which actually frustrated the very coalition that they had worked so hard um, to put in practice. Now, I will say, we've never actually had a um, one of these right-wing populist candidates actually win at the national level. Ross Perot came the closest, an earlier one is George Wallace in 1968. At the local and state level, they fare very interestingly. They either kind of get their act together and actually act as and they practice politics as is usually done. They're removed from office, very rarely on that occasion, um, but it takes a tremendous amount of willpower and it's usually over with some voter frustration. And then in other times, the voters continue to love them or they just lose the next election. So things to think about. Um, but I think the appetite for a populist, if we can see it building from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then into the 2000s, is why Trump was competing um, for the presidency as the Republican nominee against another of the least popular presidential candidates in American history. That's what's amazing. He was, Trump was the, the least popular, second only to Hillary Clinton. I do want to talk about Hillary Clinton uh, because she and her husband... If you think about like what the, the mood in the electorate was, um, but also that frustration with the parties, she and her husband had been around for a long time. And the memory of the 1990s was changing. If during the Great Recession, there was this memory of it as the good economy, when things were better. Well, that's not the memory as things go on, because there's more discussion about how much the Clintons shredded and what they were to blame for. And more importantly, that might be what older voters remember, but young <coughs> voters had no memory of the Clintons at all. None whatsoever. So Clinton's role in actually completing the Republican Revolution was really a function of how he actually had to adopt to being in the White House in the wake of the GOP revolution. And not a lot of Americans sort of realize that because we're so focused on what the president does that we forget that he loses Congress in 1994. The new king of the hill is actually Newt Gingrich who, has, who is trying desperately to actually do the work to complete the Republican revolution. And the thing that's interesting about it, what people don't remember about Bill Clinton is because he wouldn't go along with all of it and really fought for it is why we had the government shutdowns in the first place. And it was over the budget. And it was one of those things that was so hard to understand, one of them, is that in terms of cutting taxes, 
if the Republicans in Congress wanted a tax cut for the upper classes, well, Bill Clinton wanted a bigger tax cut for the middle classes. And it's hard to get people to remember those subtle distinctions, because all we hear is tax cut. Why is the government shut down? And it's a shutdown that is on Clinton's back for most people, as opposed to the larger morass going on in uh, Washington, D.C. Even though Clinton actually comes out of the government shutdowns with pretty good approval ratings and actually leaves office with pretty good um, approval, approval ratings. But the thing is, this understanding of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Republican Party and winning, because his tax cuts went through, not the GOP's, is a better way of understanding the hostility faced towards both of the Clintons, not just Hillary, but also Bill as well, and that entire family. Now, another part of that hostility, I'm going to say right now, is also about the dynamics of that family. Not Monica. That's, unfortunately, that's what most people remember about him. Um, but I think the larger, the larger dynamic, the larger unease with the Clintons was actually because Hillary Clinton was the breadwinner of that family. I encourage all of you to go back and listen to one of the most moving um, speeches that I've actually ever heard at a, um, at a convention, at, a, at, a, at, a, at either a Democratic or Republican convention. It is where Bill Clinton explains the role Hillary Clinton has had in his life. And what's really important about it is he makes very clear that she was the one who went to work so that he could dabble in politics. It was her. She was the one. She was not only the family's breadwinner, but more importantly, she was the one taking care of their kid, is the long and short of it. And the thing is, I think at this moment, when we think about her as a Walmart executive, also trying to balance this, you know, being a working mom, um, is the fact that her presence in Washington in many ways brought a new truth, uh, brought a new truth into, na into nation politics that Americans are only now openly acknowledging, acknowledging. Because women, regardless of their race, and for the most part class, are likely either their family's breadwinner or a needed equal contributor to the household income. As a matter of fact, look at the incredible decline in men's participation in the workforce over time. And what's a really sort of striking is that when you see it in terms of the fact that women um, in urban, suburban, and rural areas across, uh, across races um, are more likely, more likely to go to college, more likely to be the breadwinner. And we have this uh, really interesting phenomenon of people talking about it. And so in, t in the terms of some of this work, it's sort of lamenting what's happened to a working class family. But then there's a more interesting feminist perspective on it about the end of men and the rise of women, which is still coupled with the fact that women make less than the dollar for the same job. But in terms of thinking about why this is important with Hillary Clinton, if you look, when this is starting to change, it's when she's in Washington. And it's when she's not just being the traditional role of the first lady who, holds, who hosts Easter egg hunts or goodness knows what else they do, um, attends a vegetable garden. She's actually involved in policymaking. And she doesn't absolutely um, uh, back down. And the thing is, she's showing a new reality of the gender dynamics in the U.S. that Americans are still now profoundly uncomfortable with and still not actually dealing with. And in fact, what's hard about Hillary Clinton in the 1990s is she seemed to be an example of a white, middle-class woman 
who chose that life. As opposed to the reality, like many middle class and working class women, they had no choice in order to actually make um, ends meet because there had been so much shredding of the social welfare protections um, in the US. And of course, many working class women had always had to go to work. But Bill's convention speech made it very clear that she didn't have a choice at all, given his political ambitions. So what I think is really interesting about her, if here she is actually sort of putting out the Clinton healthcare plan, juxtaposed with that famous, you know, this is before she's very polished on the campaign trail with Bill, that it, you know, I guess I could have stayed, stayed home and baked cookies and had teas. I decided it was to fulfill my profession, which I entered before my, my husband was in public office. You know, if that's what we sort of remember about her, what she was actually doing by going into the workforce is taking, is, is updating the traditional uh, role of a political spouse. Because the whole point of political spouses is to make a president's political, um, a political run imaginable. Give him the family credence, tend to the, house, tend to the household so it looks presentable to the American public. And indeed, what's really fun about that, that is actually what the first woman president of the United States actually did. This is one of those sort of esoteric aspects of American um, political history that I really enjoy. Um, when Woodrow Wilson had a stroke and was basically debilitated, the person who was running the show and signing things for him was actually his wife, Edith Wilson. And so I think about that the way that she had it, and actually it was, actually, it was pretty well known in Congress at the time that she was actually doing this was that it was just that she was just fulfilling her spousal obligation. So in a 21st century way, that's exactly what Hillary Clinton was actually doing as well, uh, particularly keeping the family into politics. Um, and she was just supporting her husband in a way befitting how much the US's politics, economy, and society um, have evolved. I have to say, given the rise of other formidable women politicians in the wake of her time as first lady, it is very clear that even though she didn't win the Electoral College, though she did win the popular vote, she cracked that highest um, glass ceiling. In fact, right before the election, she very famously stopped apologizing for the cookie line, showing up the weekend before the election at a, a Beyonce con concert where they were celebrating and sort of mocking that, very f that, that line that has caused her such political turmoil um, in the US. Now that being said, because there's so much discomfort with, um, uh, with, with women, particularly working women and powerful women in the US, the kind of political paralysis that we're having right now would actually have been there, of course, if Hillary Clinton had actually won. This, by the way, is the picture of the day after the election. And I can't stand it for many reasons. Um, there's Trump, there's Pence. And there's Paul Ryan in the middle with the same look that I see him every single time he's photographed with him, this idea that, you know, the cat has the canary, that he's got this. And it's a real presumption that he has, that he has this um, uh, manage. But the things, in terms of t looking about, we might have a lot of careening tweets right now. We're not sure what we're going to wake up to. But Republican senators particularly John McCain, the most outspoken critic of Trump that we have right now in Washington on the Republican side. John McCain was the one who promised publicly that they would continue to oppose a Democrat's nominee to the Supreme Court. This was going to continue to happen. And more importantly, they were promising investigations, promising investigations to be started as soon as she took office. So the election outcome, no matter which way it went, wasn't going to start that. And to be honest, initially when I was first thinking about what would happen, 
and it got cleared up in the first weeks. I was predicting investigations long before the ones that had just really started now because of the Trump University and because of all of his shady business dealings, which have kind of been swept away. To be honest, I don't think they would have done uh, been so if Hillary Clinton had actually won. Um, and more importantly, because of the structures of Congress, because of how American federalism works, under Clinton, just like right now under Trump, Congress would have been unlikely to pass any kind of meaningful legislation because American federalism is designed to stop massive overnight changes, especially since most governance is really handled at the local and state level. Um, that's why there hasn't been a bill to repeal or significantly amend the reforms of the financial industry promised under Obama, one of the first things that they wanted, that's the Dodd-Frank legislation. By the way, the Republicans said that they were going to have a bill ready to repeal and replace Obamacare by January 27th. It is past January 27th, and there's really nothing. The House, yes, I realize, just sent some kind of version which has absolutely no details about how they're going to pay for it. More importantly, they've started circulating it where it is um, circulated when a lot of Republicans are saying, let's just amend what's on the books now. Passing something new is going to be friggin' impossible not just because of the Democrats in Congress, but also because the Republicans can't agree. They couldn't even agree in the primaries. Why do we think they're gonna agree now? And finally, we have that immigration reform. Much promised long before that, and that had to be done via an executive order that the courts halted almost immediately. Now, let's really be honest. What really helped in terms of halting that, um, uh, halting that executive order was the incredible pressure um, coming from outraged citizens filling in airports, taxi drivers going on strike, Americans deleting Uber um, from their phones. My favorite, actually, because um, I lived in New York for a while, um, the New Yorkers live and breathe by these little bodegas, like these little corner markets where you pick everything up. And the bodega owners, all from Yemeni, more, largely from Yemeni, shut them down across the entire city. And really, what's kind of amazing about this is what we're seeing is we're seeing how people are actually getting social media to work to actually turn out. So kind of actually concluding what Howard Dean had kind of begun back in 2004, right? So I gotta say this popular outrage um, and, and, um, and outcry will help because liberals, moderates, um, and the left have represented the majority of the electorate since the late 2000s. The Democrats have been winning the popular vote for the presidency Senate and House. The problem is, of course, the popular vote doesn't count all that much. And it's not just in the case of the presidency, it's obviously the Electoral College, but we've got a serious problem with gerrymandering in terms of actually just seeing just how many more votes it takes to win a Democratic seat um, uh, than a Republican seat. Now that narrow popular majority is not reflected, of course, in the makeup of not just Congress, but state legislatures and the executive uh, branch because of how districts are drawn Seats are allocated, and Americans are completely dis are, are increasingly disenfranchised. So even if we're coming close to a minority-majority um, country, demographics are hardly going to be destiny, especially in a political climate best part characterized by partisanship without parties. And that's the term that we use right now, that we have incredible partisanship in Washington, but almost no membership, really, in the general election, as indicated by just how few people are actually voicing their opinions in the primaries. But look, just as much as there are indications in the U.S. of more civic and political participation really not seen since the 1960s, there's still every reason to fear 
that the very undemocratic government structures and political traditions that made Trump's victory possible just feeds voter frustration, and which is, of course, something we have to keep in mind here, a rage to be found around the world right now in an era when it seems clear that young and old democracies might very well collapse. And on that, I'm going to end.